J Cut and this is the K Cut. I'm Rachel. I'm here with my co-hosts. I am a writer for Films Fatale and I love international film and lost cinema. Who here is with me? Andreas here. I am the creator and one of the main writers of Films Fatale. I also love international cinema, but I tend to lean more towards the art house side of things. And uh, who else is here? James here, content creator and stay-at-home husband. I Produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I'm a contributor to Films Fatale. I also like international, but I definitely lean more towards 70s cinema and no-budget stuff. And today was my pick for the episode topic, and I thought it might be fun to discuss our favorite debut films, which we'll break down into two categories. The first being our favorite debut acting performance, and the second half being our favorite directing debut. And is there anything special about our episode this week? Well, it is the 50th episode. That's right. Halfway to 100. Yes. Uh, and I feel like that's such a fitting topic for today because uh, even though this isn't the debut episode or, or anything, it's nice to reflect on what it looked like 50 episodes ago. Considering that we do this mostly at a week, you know, on a weekly basis, um, the pod's officially been out for almost a year, but we've been operating together with a couple of test run episodes, which we may release one day uh, for about a year. So uh, we can reflect on our own beginnings, um, but as well as, you know, looking forward to the future. And we can do that with these debuts. We can see them in hindsight and know where these filmmakers and or performers went from there. So I feel like it's a very fitting subject for today. So uh, James, since this was your topic, First off, are we doing directors first, I believe? No, we're, doing, we're actually going to be doing actors' debut first. Actors' debut first. Okay, fantastic. Uh, do you want to go first then, since this is your topic? Sure, why not? So I was thinking about what debut performances I really love, and I think the one I decided to settle on was Bruce Campbell's debut in The Evil Dead. Oh my goodness. That's actually a very interesting pick because, um, I mean, it, it does make perfect sense, but it's absolutely not one that I even considered, actually. Yeah, I think it's just one of my favorites because you could tell how good of an actor he was despite being an amateur actor. And I also like the performance because it's one of those, not only is it an iconic performance within the genre of horror, but it also is an interesting one because it beats the final girl trope in all like horror movies around the time. Because generally, it would be a girl who survives and you know gets the killer at the end. But in this one, out of the five cast members, three of them out of the five being girls, he's the only one left by the end. So I think not only was it a groundbreaking performance, just in acting ability, I think it was also groundbreaking in, you know, deconstructing different tropes that had developed around that period, mainly due to a lot of the slasher flicks that were around at the time. Yeah. And it's so interesting because for this type of film, first off, I mean, Evil Dead is such a fantastic indie horror film, especially given how much it achieves. Um, his charisma and his screen presence could be felt instantly in a film of, like in a film of this nature. And, you know, it only it's only fitting that the Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2, rather, which is obviously the sequel, but it's almost like a carbon copy version of the Evil Dead, you know, it brings him back and it gets him to do it all over again in case you miss it the first time. Yeah, it also is interesting because he didn't really lead a career in starring roles in major pictures. He kind of stuck to the independent and B movie route, which is something I totally respect, but you know, he has a lot of character traits just as a personality that have carried on through the years, which I think is 
exemplified in the movie My Name is Bruce, where he plays a parodied version of himself. And it just it he's just such a treasure. It's, I think he stands up to a lot some of the best performers in history in general. He just decided not to go that route. Yeah, I feel like you could only help but wonder what his career would have looked like had he taken off in more mainstream roles. But at the same time, maybe that's just what he preferred. I mean, he's so in his element with these types of low-budget indie festival films that maybe he'd be miserable on the bigger projects. So, you know, why take the fish out of water, right? Exactly. And also, I mean, Ash Williams is such an iconic character and the Evil Dead is, you know been referenced in so many different things since its release. So it's like, not only was it a great debut, but I mean, having that much of a lasting impact. And also I got to give credit. It's not my pick for directing, but Sam Raimi's debut as a director. Phenomenal. Oh yeah, absolutely. You can see his tongue in cheek, silly yet serious balance since this very first film. Um, And he would continue to hold that reputation even in, uh, you know, a lot of people look back on the Spider-Man films that he directed now, kind of saying, maybe we need that kind of fun in our lives again, because he knows he knows how to do it really well. And yeah, he has a very playful, he, he does the playful thing really nicely, whether it's in action films or horror films. So, and you've got Bruce Campbell, who really brings that side out of Sam Raimi really well. So it, it, it's a fantastic pairing between a, a filmmaker and an actor. So yeah, that was my pick. Who's next? Me, I guess. Sure. Who did you pick? Okay, so there have been plenty of great debuts from actors. Uh, most people start off in bit parts or extras, but some start right away with a large role, maybe even win an Oscar in rare cases. They get a lot of fame. But has anybody in the history of Hollywood had a more seismic debut than Lauren Bacall? Ooh, that's a very Mm -hmm. interesting one. For those listening who don't know what you're talking about, please, details. So when Lauren Bacall was about 18 or 19 years old, she was working. uh, She had a few parts on Broadway. She was trying to succeed. She was modeling. And her picture was noticed by the wife, I believe it was uh, Slim Hawks, the wife of Howard Hawks, who saw this picture of her actually posing for a blood drive because it was World War II. And she noticed it, brought it to the attention of Howard Hawks, and they uh, brought her out to Hollywood, gave her the absolute royal treatment in terms of screen tests and things like that. And she was cast in a little movie called To Have and Have Not, which starred Humphrey Bogart. So she immediately starts out with this incredibly plum role. She is fabulous in it. And I really think that is her movie. Bogart is great in it. There's a lot of good supporting roles, but it would be nothing without her and the chemistry she and Bogart have. Of course, in real life, they fell in love at the same time and wound up getting married. That adds to it. But on screen, it absolutely comes through. And she's just so compelling. And at 19, she just has all this talent. And... So many of her lines and scenes in that movie are iconic. You know how to whistle, the singing, the cute scenes with Bogart. Even if she had never made another movie after that, even if she had chosen to quit acting, she would have been a legend based on this movie alone. And of course, she had a great career after that. But I really can't think of a person who made that big an impact the first time they ever acted on screen. And she had never even been in so much as a short. 
So that's my pick. Yeah, Lauren Bacall reminds me of like a Eva Marie Saint or somebody of that nature where it almost feels like the right place at the right time because like you said, even if uh, Eva Marie Saint did, didn't do a single film after On the Waterfront, you wouldn't need to. And it's the same thing with, with Lauren Bacall where it's like, it's such a, such a performance of scope and legacy that, mm-hmm. you know, luckily it was only, it was only roses from there. And it was, you know, a fantastic trajectory and filmography, but I mean, what a, yeah, absolutely. What a way to start, like to be able to go toe to toe with, with a Humphrey Bogart, like that well. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is that the movie was originally written because you can you can tell when you watch it that it was basically trying to rip off Casablanca because studio system. And there's a part where Bogart's character helps out the uh, injured resistance worker and his wife. And originally in the screenplay, he was supposed to have a little romance with the wife of the resistance worker, San Familiar. And as they were doing the movie, Hawks and Bogart noticed, no, there's no way the audience is going to believe that anybody besides Lauren Bacall is going to be Bogart's love interest in this. So they rewrote the movie and Bacall was changed into the female lead. And to be so powerful that you change the whole movie just by appearing, that that's something. Yeah, especially with somebody like Howard Hawks, who during the 40s was, was on the rise, but definitely was in command of his craft, you know, with stuff like Scarface and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then for him to recognize something of this and, of this caliber and say, Hey, listen, we've got something really good here. And this, and this actress that we really need to need to take this shot with that says a lot about some of these capabilities. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a, that's a fantastic pick. And uh, we can always rely on you as always to go old Hollywood and, and find <laughs> these uh, fantastic examples. I was thinking a little bit too modern, but I look, I'm not going to say this is the the greatest film debut of all time or anything, but for me, I just can't help but reflect on this particular one, especially within the last 10 years or so. And that's a surprising Oscar nominee. I say that because you'll know, you'll know what I mean. The most surprising Oscar nominee of the last couple of years, uh, the the acting debut of Lakeith Stanfield in short term 12. And for me, I'm flabbergasted that this is, the work of somebody who really didn't have much experience before this outside of the short version of short term 12, which was actually, um, it was actually, I believe like a, like a student thesis by, uh, by the director. Um, shoot. My, my Wikipedia closed. Sorry. Just give me one second. The, the student thesis by Destin Daniel Credin. And he was able to turn this into a full-fledged film, obviously starring Brie Larson. But if I'm not mistaken, like Keith Stanfield was the only returning performer from the original short. And you could see why, because he's so he's so captivating. You know, you see this uh you see this tortured teenager with so much hope and promise and and charm and magnetism, and he's able to to freestyle. And you see the imagination and the future there, but at the same time, yeah, again, he's like held back by his own personal demons. And just seeing that alone as such a commanding performance, I ranked it as one of my favorites of the 2010s when I did my lists on Films Mattel. Probably the last acting lists I'll ever do because they're just too tricky. Um, but to see where he went from there 
such varied roles. Like he doesn't play the same thing again and again. You know, if you're ranking his uh, his Bison character in, I think it's a Bison in in Bojack Horseman with, uh, you know, I can't say too much, but in Get Out to what he played in Judas and the Black Messiah, like such such versatility. There's Atlanta. There's God knives out. Yeah, I keep going, but it's all started from this this beautiful yet tortured performance at short term 12. And he's got so much more ahead of him too. Like he's very early into his career, really. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Short term 12 wasn't that long ago, but yeah, I was actually wanting to bring that up because when you look at his career, because short term 12, it seemed like a very naturalistic performance for one, you know, you could tell that he just embodied everything this character was supposed to be. But as you said, when you go through his career, when you take a look at something like, like knives out, you know, straight-laced professional in law enforcement who's helping solve a crime. That's not something you expect from, like, who played this kid in Short Term 12. But then you look at something like Atlanta, where he's kind of from the hood, but also he's kind of really strange as a character. But, I mean, the show is very much influenced by Twin Peaks, so it's like he has a sense of, like, being this surreal presence and just honestly, there's so many one-liners from that show of things he just says that I'm just like, how only he could deliver this line. Or like you said in Get Out, he's shown as this victim in the beginning and then you don't see him. But then when you see him again, he just turns into this very you know, pristine, clean, cut character. And then at the drop of a dime, when the flash goes off, he goes back into this frantic panic because he's the victim again. You know, you don't really see performances like that. You know, it's not often people can switch emotions like that flawlessly, like he does. And, you know, throughout all of his roles, really. Yeah, he, he definitely is such a natural. And uh, I'm a very, very big fan of his. And, you know, I brought up the Oscar thing because when he was nominated for supporting actor in Judas and the Black Messiah, which to this day doesn't make any sense, I'll take it. I don't care because I feel like the guy deserves to be Oscar nominated. And I hope he follows in his uh, Get Out and Judas co-star Daniel Kaluuya's path by um, getting an Oscar win on his second nomination, which I hope is soon to come in the same way that it was for Daniel Kaluuya. So that's my pick for performer. Um, Godspeed you, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, I think you're Fantastic actor. And I can't wait for Atlanta season three coming out in a couple months. So uh, what about for filmmakers? though? same order. Sure. Why not? James, uh, what, what filmmaker did you go with? I decided to go with Steven Soderbergh and his debut Sex, Lies and Videotape. That's a good one. Nice pick. And also very characteristic of you. Yes, extremely. Yes, very extreme. <laughs> I'm going to pick the indie film. Always. So I think. It's amazing because it's one of those features. This isn't a debut. Like it is, but it's almost too good to be a debut. It's like, mm-hmm. this seems like a director who's experienced, even though the only thing he did prior, which like film wise that he directed was a, I believe it was a tour documentary of the band. Yes. And I mean, the performances he got out of this, I mean, the screenplay didn't even need to be much, which he wrote himself, but just everybody has their place and also to have a cast like that work together so well because you know you have james spader andy mcdowell peter gallagher uh, laura san giacomo and i think it's also one of the ones where andy mcdowell shines because it's it's no secret that people kind of have like a love-hate relationship with her 
they either think she's good in something or they think she's bad in something. She can be hit or miss, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, that's that's going without saying. But I, I think that's more so on who puts her in what movie and who's directing her. Because here she's very capable. But James Spader, I don't know what it is about him, but I would easily put him in the conversation of like greatest of all time. Just the kinds of roles he takes. And also, this doesn't seem like a role that everybody would take on, given kind of how... Because it's kind of taboo in scope, if you know anything about the movie. But also, one of the things I also like to bring up is the fact that not only did it win the Palme d'Or, but Steven Soderbergh is the youngest director to win at 26. Yeah. Dang, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> well, I don't, exactly. Don't and so if he was 26 when it won, I imagine he made this when he was 25. So the fact that he was basically a kid and did something so impactful... And it's funny because apparently in his speech, he said that since he won, it's got to go downhill from there. And he had five commercial bombs in a row before bring getting himself back into the spotlight. So, yeah, I just think it's an overall great film. It's also one of the few films that kind of spearheaded the indie renaissance in the 90s. It's great that you bring up the cast amongst all of its strengths, because if you really think about it, and I could be wrong, when you're looking at Eddie McDowell and James Spader, Peter Gallagher, these were all people who I don't think were really big at all. And I'm not saying that this film put them on the map, but to see such promising talent, especially like, you know, you bring up James Spader, we're talking about versatility with Keith Stanfield. And I feel like James Spader could be a part of that conversation as well. A very versatile actor. Um, Yeah. These are all people who weren't necessarily discovered or not quite in the way that we know of them now. Like they weren't like these, these icons or well-established individuals and yet here they really shine. Like I would argue that's uh, Andy McDowell's best performance. It's up there for being one of James Spader's. They're all really good, even though they're, they feel like this untapped talent back then. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, this was released in 89 and it, what a year to release too, because uh, there's, I like to say there's three specific films that kind of foreshadowed what was coming around in the nineties. It's, Obviously, that film, it's Gus Van Sant's Drugstore Cowboy, and Spike Lee released Do the Right Thing that year also. So it was in good company, especially from people who were so early on in their careers, but yet pulled off something amazing. And apparently, uh, Steven Soderbergh talked about that he was penning a sequel to this movie. So I'm kind of curious to see if that actually happens. Well, I'm happy to be born that year now, the year of 89, the uh, the start of uh, James's favorite wave of, of films. And what did they give the Oscar to that year? Oh, right. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> we, 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 we do not. We do not need to talk about driving Miss Daisy. Um, <laughs> we, we don't. Unless you're looking for a very good sleep aid, then that film is fantastic. Take it from me. I've got sleep apnea and insomnia. Fantastic way to fall asleep. Anyway, uh, Rachel, before I get too cynical and I lose listeners, uh, what, what um, filmmaking debut are you going to go with? Well, if we feel old and useless after talking about Steven Soderbergh, we're definitely going to feel old and useless after this, because I'm talking about not just one of the youngest uh, directors ever to be nominated for Best Director, but the film that had the youngest actress so far ever to be nominated for Best Lead Actress. And that is Beasts of the Southern Wild by Ben Zeitlin. Oh, that, okay. I never saw that one. That, that is a great one. 
Please tell us more. Yes. So this is a sort of, for those of you who haven't seen it, it is a fantasy drama. It brings in sort of a larger context of climate change and uh, economic and home insecurity and all of these things and weaves in some sort of anthropological stuff or the oryx. And it's just this unbelievably gorgeous movie. It reminds me of The Piano in that it's the sort of film where the setting is so carefully created that you feel immersed in it. And when you come out of the movie, you still live in that world for a little while after after you've left the theater because it is that impactful. And most of the actors are non-professional actors, Dwight Henry and uh, Gwendolyn Wallace in particular, who had two very difficult roles as the dad and daughter. And this movie was made on a very limited budget. And uh, Zeitlin was just about 30, I think, when he made it, about 29. And immediately he it did well. I believe it did well at Cannes. It was nominated for many, many Oscars. And this movie, in considering the economic steam a film needs in 2012 to get that far, I'm amazed that it did so well, that it utterly deserved it. Yeah, and it... I mean, considering that you can look at it as as an allegory for what was going on during Hurricane Katrina, um, it it only being released like X amount of years afterwards, I think it was like seven or so, um, still very heavy hitting. And even if you don't identify with that sort of uh, that sort of a struggle, uh, it certainly speaks to a lot of the working and lower classes and the the day to day. Uh, what was that they experience? And I, you know, you brought up the lasting effect of the film. I've seen it a couple of times and I like compulsively ugly cry by the end of it. Like I, I, I find it really hard to, to stay, you know, to stay like dry around my, my, my tear ducts at the end of this film. Um, like if I had to come up with a list of the films that make me cry the hardest, this is for sure. One of them, there's something about it. That's so, painful yet beautiful and to see all of this destruction of the world and the ugly side of of civilization and how it it, it doesn't take into account all of its inhabitants through yeah, the eyes community. of a child yeah through the eyes of a child and this uh this fantasy vision it's almost like a like a not as disturbing version of pan's labyrinth like it's meant more for like actual kids to see this perhaps um not to say that it is for kids because it isn't, but yeah, what a what a powerful film. Yeah, um, and what a performance from Wallace. I'm astounded how much talent he found from people who were predominantly not actors. Like Henry was a baker, and I think he did his audition at one in the morning because that was when he could do it before he started baking for the day. Yeah, and I, I, I from if I'm not mistaken, I don't even think he particularly wanted to be in this initially, but. But they, they didn't back down. They saw something in him. And I, to this day, think that he was snubbed of a Best Supporting Actor nomination um, for that year. And, uh, you know, not quite as salty as I am about Driving Miss Daisy. But, you know, Argo. Argo winning over this this year. Um, Argo's a, a, a good film. It's a pretty good film. Actually, it's, it's quite a good film. But I would for sure elevate beasts of the southern wild amongst other films in 2012 above it for best picture so it is what it is but i'm glad that it got recognized andres we're canadian we're not allowed to talk nicely about argo (laughs) 
Well, yeah, especially all those uh, discrepancies. But anyway, that's a that's a discussion for another pod. All the things wrong with uh, Argo from taken from you know the annals of Canadian history. So <laughs> anyway, um, in the same way that I feel like uh, James's pick might have like been like a very obvious one, I was torn between two. But I'll I'll tell you why I went with the one that I went with. The one that I didn't go with is uh, Ivan's Childhood by Tarkovsky. I didn't go with it because I took into account the amount of um, stuff made beforehand by him as like a as a student. And technically, this filmmaker also did stuff as a student, but you know the shorts and I guess one featurette that he did as an art student. Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm still going with it. Um, Eraserhead by David Lynch is the film that I'm going with because I feel like what what a welcome to the world. How can this art film, this experimental film, that's really meant for the, the audiences of the underground, how could it have taken the world by storm to the point that people who wouldn't even be watching this stuff were now watching this, you know, at midnight screenings? And he was uh, successful enough to have even been approached to make a biopic, uh, you know, The Elephant Man shortly afterwards and in Dune after that. So this is this this all comes from this really, really abstract depiction of, of American suburbia that is uh, that is Eraserhead and certainly a nightmare for people who have seen it. Yeah, Eraserhead is one of those movies that I recommend sparingly because there is a certain type of person who will like this and a type of person who would absolutely hate it. I think because uh, I've actually, being it's one of those films that is my expertise because it is also kind of a no-budget film, it's fascinating because the total production time frame, I think it was made over a period of five years and the majority of it was post-production, mainly on sound design. And you can tell that they were very deliberate in the sounds they used. But when you bring up how he got Elephant Man, it's fascinating because Elephant Man is such a reserved film compared to this. So the fact that someone saw, okay, he has talent. He can take on something that's actually kind of more coherent. And then obviously, you know, Dune didn't fare so well, which I still have yet to see the original. But I find it interesting because you can tell where he's headed with the racer head. And then it kind of makes sense when he finally does blue velvet and solidifies his style. But to go back and look at this, it's fascinating how influential it is because all in all, it really, you can tell there's a point to it, but it's never made obvious. And it just seems like a bunch of random stuff that's thrown together, but it works. You could tell it's a metaphor for something, but you don't quite, it's almost like there's a constant carrot being dangled in front of you because it it wants so bad to explain itself, but it knows it can't. Uh, shout out to Dean Stockwell since you brought up uh, Blue Velvet. Uh, may, may he rest in peace. What a fantastic actor. But no, I um, and, you, you know, when you bring up the Elephant Man, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, of all people, uh, Mel Brooks, producer Mel Brooks, who might have seen something in uh and uh, and David Lynch here and uh, his capability to bring something to uh, to the Elephant Man. So, um, yeah, so much, so much strange, fascinating lineage. But hey, because of Eraserhead, we have this access to a lot of art films. I feel like Eraserhead 
was the start of a lot of different things because the Ledge of Twin Peaks, which is one of the most influential series of all time, uh, you know, he brought up Atlanta. It also influenced uh, X Files, Lost, Sopranos because of how cinematic it was, etc., etc., etc. And even with films, I feel like it slowly helped with what would eventually overtake a lot of the schmalty stuff in the box office. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, it took its time in order to do so, but it, a lot of this, this stuff was starting to combat out of Africa, for instance, in, in the box office or, you know, a lot of that sort of stuff. So, um, it really was this access to a world, especially without the internet, that people just didn't even know existed in, in film. And it was almost like, can I have more of this, please? Even though Eraserhead is just so just so disturbing. He's also like one of the history's first like cool surrealists. I mean, we have like surrealist art artists and painters and stuff like that, but I think he was one of the first like in film to be like, it's cool to be weird. One of the things I'm starting to realize from this episode is that the late 80s were a much more pivotal time than I think a lot of people are giving it credit for, because I tend to think of that as kind of a dead decade for film, but there was a lot of emerging stuff that was very interesting. Actually, my uh, studies, when I was doing my research on 80s films for my decades lists, I learned that as well. I was like, wow, I didn't think that this was going to be a bad decade, but this actually is so much better than people are giving it credit for. I think because it gets associated with, yeah, the idea of commercialism and the the bad yeah, side of franchising. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, these things that often besmirch in the same way that a lot of 80s music kind of gets a bad rap or um, 80s television gets a bad rap. You know, if you look at some of the cheesy television, I'm looking at the the stuff that they were showing in Europe, like Berlin Alexanderplatz on television, you know, like there's, there's always something more interesting. And I feel like the eighties is absolutely um, a lot better than it gets credit for. So shout out to the eighties. The thing about the eighties that I like to point out was when the eighties came around, it was the end of the studios letting artists be artists. Because if you look Mm -hmm. at it, a lot of the big studios in the seventies were funding some of the greatest works of art, regardless of how much money it made. Yet they, these films are so successful. But once the kind of commercialism came through, it was, I don't want to say it was return of like the Hayes Code, but it was like they definitely had a set, a set of unwritten standards to appeal to bigger audiences and to make more money. That is true. So when, because the thing about it is like a lot of the independent film, I think that's where independent film really became independent film because it was groups of people saying the studios aren't going to give us money or access to do these things. We kind of have to do it ourselves. So it's like, you know, you have these subset of business people who are like, Hey, we can make really cool stuff outside of Hollywood. We'll focus on these while they can go ahead and make, you know, their millions of dollars and buy their solid gold yachts. (laughs) Yeah, that's true as well. But then I feel like, you know, you're looking at like the mainstream film stuff, whereas you said the indie film started to shine in its own right. And the art house international film sector started to shine in their own right as well. So it depends on where you look in, in the 80s. But if you're looking strictly at like Hollywood. Oh, yeah, it was the death of New Hollywood. Um, stuff was getting like really corny again. Uh, yeah. So with that angle, you know, Hollywood was was. 
outside of you know its franchises, which a lot of people love. Um, I took a bit of a bit of a hit, but um, anyway, on that note, we're gonna make some uh, rec- random recommendations. They could be Hollywood, they might not be, but I know one thing is for certain: you could find us in a specific place. That's right. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under the K Cut, and. We have updates and bits of trivia, things like that there. Come check us out. For Smorgasbord this month, I believe our episode is dropping on um, December 7th. And it is going to be Disco Dancer, that's our collective pick. Then Coherence, The Double Life of Veronique. And um, I assigned this one, Some Like It Hot. Yeah, that's a fantastic lineup of films. So be sure to check those out. If not, you could check uh, these following films out. So uh, same order. James, do you want to go first? Sure, why not? So I was kind of thinking I wanted to go with another debut for this one. So I decided to go with Thoroughbreds, which is the debut of writer and director Corey Finley. I sadly still have to check that out. Oh, it's so good. It's got Olivia Cook, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Anton Yelchin in the final project that he worked on as two weeks after he wrapped that film was actually when he passed. Oh. That's a hell of a lineup as well, especially uh, rest in peace, Anton Yelchin, and uh, what he was fully capable of. Um, but then, yeah, you've got a lot of uh, newcomers in that, Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy, who are both sensational actresses. So, yes, I, I've been meaning to check that out, and I promise I will one of these days. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, well, mine is about a different kind of debut. In uh, This past week in 1969, the series Sesame Street debuted on American television. And this year, a documentary came out. I've heard it a little bit in the Oscar conversation. And that is Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. And it is very interesting because it was really the first educational film, or I mean, educational series of its kind on TV in the US. And so you had all these cultural ideas that went into it. You had so much planning, so much care all this creativity. And I never gave Sesame Street much thought one way or the other. But after watching this, I... I had a lot more respect for it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've also been meaning to check that out as well. Um, Sesame Street's one of the one of the goaded shows, particularly for children, one of the greats. Um, for myself, should I go the debut route? Okay, you know what? Uh, since I w- was going to bring it up earlier, um, and I had to decide between the two, let's just go with Ivan's Childhood by uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, which uh, is such a beautiful film for somebody's first major major feature and yeah like any other Tarkovsky film it's a feast for the eyes a feast for the mind definitely a philosophical film and to know that he only got better is is one thing but the but like just it's so fitting that this is how he began his filmography with something as as beautiful as Ivan's childhood so that's it for debuts uh, all good things must come to an end uh filmmakers and or performers just keep on going and we're going to go we're going to keep on going as well uh thank you both for a fantastic 51st episodes and thank you all for listening to our 51st episodes and we hope to keep bringing you fantastic content um here's to the next one that was the k-cut now we're going into the l-cut 